Hello and welcome to my first podcast. My name is Nick Roberts. I live in San Francisco and I build technology products for a living, but as I'm sure you can relate, I have a lot of interests beyond my job. My goal is to make this podcast a kind of excuse to learn more about subjects like history, aviation, mountaineering, etc., as well as technology, and I invite you to come along for the ride. Today's subject originates from an interview I heard with Fred Kaplan on Sam Harris's podcast, Making Sense. The episode was called The Bomb, and I really recommend giving it a listen. I'll put links in the show notes. It explores the development and politics surrounding nuclear weapons from the end of World War II to the present. And look, I I know there's a pandemic going on right now and we've all got enough to worry about, but hopefully we'll develop vaccines, you know, in, in two or three years down the road, the coronavirus will be a bad memory, much in the same way as SARS or the swine flu. Nuclear weapons, however, will not be going away anytime soon. In fact, they loom as large as they ever have. Though there's no Cold War anymore, and most people file fears of a nuclear annihilation away in a mental cabinet and occasionally pull them out when rhetoric heats up with another country, it's hard to imagine something like a vaccine for this kind of existential risk. The prospect of getting rid of all nuclear weapons seems akin to asking humans to, like, unlearn how to make cars or airplanes. What's more, simply having these things around means accidents tend to happen. And on that note, let's get into it. There's a concept in history called the Sword of Damocles. Damocles is this sort of like apocryphal character, you know, from from these ancient Greek tales. And uh, according to this story on Wikipedia, Damocles was pandering to Dionysius, his king, exclaimed to him that Dionysius was truly fortunate as a great man of power and authority, surrounded by magnificence. In response, Dionysius offered to switch places with Damocles for one day so that Damocles could taste that very fortune firsthand. Damocles quickly and eagerly accepted the king's proposal. He sat down on the king's throne surrounded by every luxury, But Dionysius, who had made many enemies during his reign, arranged that a huge sword would hang above the throne, held at the pommel by a single hair of a horse's tail to evoke the sense of what it's like to be king. Though having much fortune, always having to watch in fear and anxiety against dangers that may try to overtake him. Damocles finally begged the king that he be allowed to depart because he no longer wanted to be so fortunate realizing that with great fortune and power also comes great danger. We can look at nuclear weapons and other sorts of potential calamities as these kinds of swords that dangle by a hair right above our heads, you know, waiting to fall. The generation of humanity who knew a world without nuclear weapons before 1945 is fast disappearing. And the last time humanity seriously stared down Armageddon, you know, to someone like a millennial seems long ago. You know, that was all in the 80s. That was before a lot of us were born. Dan Carlin, who runs one of my favorite history podcasts called Hardcore History, thinks that our forgetfulness is natural. He wonders, actually, if this is a kind of evolutionary advantage, because it's debilitating to maintain a state of peak fear. It takes you out of the present, prevents you from enjoying your stay on Earth, 
To many of us, nuclear weapons are this sort of abstract thing. You know, they're too distant to remain top of mind. But now and again, we're reminded of what's at stake. Fred Kaplan, who I mentioned earlier, points out in his introduction to The Bomb, Presidents, Generals, and the Secret History of Nuclear War, that current events, such as the recent tensions with a nuclear North Korea, they thrust us into remembering what unchecked, maniacally destructive power rests solely in the hands of the U.S. president. As of March 1st, 2019, the United States has 656 deployed intercontinental ballistic missiles, also known as ICBMs, submarine-launched ballistic missiles, and heavy bombers. This amounts to 1,365 individual nuclear warheads of variable power, inclusive of the B-83 thermonuclear bomb, with a blast yield 80 times more powerful than the weapon detonated over Hiroshima, Japan, during World War II. The Russian Federation, the United States counterpart in the New START, uh, which is the Strategic Arms Reduction Treaty, possesses similar numbers of deployed launch platforms and warheads. So when we wake up to these facts again, it's helpful to remember you know, that these, these numbers are actually merely a fraction of what they once were. And though the current U.S. relationship with Russia and certain other nuclear players remains icy, we haven't come close to the crises of the Cold War in, in recent years, where the survival of humanity was in question minute to minute and the probability of accidental detonations surged. But what I'm going to talk about are a few examples of you know, particularly unnerving you know, examples um, of uh, these accidental sort of Detonate, almost detonations, sampled from you know, much larger lists. Unexploded nuclear bombs, believe it or not, still lay unfound off American coasts, embedded in swamps, in the Pacific Ocean, and elsewhere. Because throughout the 1950s and 1960s, as the Cold War went into full swing, increasing tensions caused both sides to ratchet up military activity in an effort to stay ready for making or countering a nuclear attack. So with with so many planes, ships, missiles, and submarines deploying, accidents began to happen, a lot of them. Submarines with nuclear weapons on board malfunctioned and sank, planes crashed or fell off of carriers. In the process, nuclear ordnance began to go missing, or very nearly detonate by accident. The U.S. military refers to these events ominously as broken arrows, specifically, quote, accidental or unauthorized detonation, end quote, or, quote, seizure, theft, or loss of a nuclear weapon or component, including jettisoning, end quote. First, we want to talk about chrome dome. When the Soviet Union launched Sputnik, the world's first satellite, into orbit, the U.S. Air Force just simply panicked. According to Matt McCormick in Buzz 1-4, which is a choice documentary, leaders like General Curtis LeMay of Strategic Air Command, which I'm going to abbreviate to SAC, reasoned that if Soviets could launch satellites into space, they could also lob nuclear warheads at the U.S. mainland without the use of manned aircraft. So, the Air Force launched Operation Chrome Dome, which put 12 B-52 thermonuclear-laden bombers on these pre-planned attack vectors aimed at the Soviet Union 24 hours a day, 7 days a week, from 1960 to 1968. 
The mission was to enforce deterrence by looping near Soviet airspace over the Arctic and Mediterranean. So if the Soviets were to destroy U.S. missile or bomber or submarine bases with a missile attack, SAC wanted enough bombers airborne to threaten enormous damage and retaliation. You know, again, it's sort of like it's it's sort of like um, the sort of Damocles, but, you know, we're sort of uh, threatening the Soviets over the Arctic with this giant sword in the form of B-52s carrying thermonuclear weapons. Such a massive and ongoing procedure led to problems almost immediately. During the years that Chromedone ran, five B-52s crashed with thermonuclear weapons on board. First one was in 1961 in Goldsboro, North Carolina. A B-52G model broke up in midair and jettisoned two thermonuclear bombs, killing three out of eight crew members in the process. One of the Mark 39 3.8 megaton bombs uh, completed all but one arming step required for detonation. Now, the Mark 39 is actually about four times as powerful as the most powerful uh, bomb in the U.S. arsenal right now, the B-83 mentioned before. So you can just imagine the scale of the potential destruction. The next uh, event was in 1961 in Yuba City, California which is actually sort of close to home for me. Four crew members ejected, four thermonuclear bombs were recovered from the crash site. In 1964, in in Savage Mountain, Maryland, this was the basis for the Buzz 1-4 documentary. Uh, I I would just, again, really recommend checking it out. It's on Amazon uh, Prime Video. Three out of five crew members died when the tail of their B-52 broke off in high turbulence over Maryland. Uh, This was actually a known issue for early models of this bomber. And its two thermonuclear bombs, each with a nine megaton yield, were found in the center of the fuselage wreckage. The next was in 1966 in Palomares, Spain. Uh, B-52 collided with a KC-135, which is a U.S. tanker, at 31,000 feet during a mid-air refueling operation. All crew members on the KC-135 perished, and three of seven B-52 crew members also died. Four bombs were scattered near Palomares, and two of them had their conventional explosives detonate, which contaminated a large area with plutonium debris. The next was in 1968 at Thule Air Base in Greenland. A cabin fire caused the crew of a B-52G to eject, resulting in one fatality. The plane crashed with four Mark 28 bombs on board. Again, the conventional munitions exploded, causing radioactive contamination as pieces of nuclear bombs were strewn about around the crash area, and a joint cleanup effort with Denmark ensued, Denmark you know, being the proprietor of Greenland. So this is a brief history of the the accidents that happened during the uh, Chrome Dome operations over the Arctic and the Mediterranean. But we're going to switch back and take a look at the United States and particularly the Titan II missile, which was kind of the predominant um, ICBM that the U.S. had in deployment at the time. By 1980, the Titan II missiles, then 18 years old, really started to show their age. Airmen at the time complained frequently about fuel leaks and faulty vapor detectors in the silos. 
These were the first missiles that the Air Force could fire from an underground silo, unlike their above-ground-launched predecessors, and which, when capped with a 740-ton blast door, made them very useful as a counter-strike weapon. The missiles carried the largest yield warhead ever mounted on an ICBM by the United States, the 9-megaton W-53. On September 18, 1980, at Missile Complex 374-7 in Damascus, Arkansas, Senior Airman David Powell, a 21-year-old missile repairman from the 308th Strategic Air Wing's Propellant Transfer System team, the PTS team, began a routine maintenance procedure to restore pressure to the second-stage oxidizer tank. The Titan's engines relied on a what's called a hypergolic reaction between aerosene 50 and the oxidizer nitrogen tetroxide to create an immense amount of thrust. So as Powell unscrewed the pressure cap in order to add ordinary nitrogen gas to increase pressure on the oxidizer, oxidizer you, know, you can think of like kind of the nitrogen is tamping down the oxidizer um, inside of the tank. He dropped the nine pound socket attached to the wrench, and it fell through the small gap between the maintenance platform and the missile's skin, 70 feet down the silo, ricocheted and punctured the first stage fuel tank, causing a jet of aerosene to spew into the silo. The first stage, um, to keep in mind, sort of like to have a sort of a mental diagram of what's going on here, the first stage is the section on the bottom of the rocket. On top of that, you have the second stage, and on top of that, you have the, well, the bomb, basically, in a, inside of a cone, kind of on the top, the warhead. So here we have aerosene spewing into the missile silo, and after many attempts to diagnose and fix the situation, the missile crew and PTS teams just had to evacuate. They were worried about the decreasing pressure uh, of the fuel tank on the bottom, you know, how it would cause the entire structure of the first stage to collapse with the weight of the second stage on top, and then the warhead sitting on top of that. If this happened, it was almost certain that the oxidizer and the fuel would mix, which would set off a massive uncontrolled explosion. And so the warhead would be somewhere in this mix, and no one really knew for sure what would happen to that. Another airman, David Livingston, attempted to re-enter the silo in order to switch on an exhaust fan to vent the fuel vapors. However, during this process, the fuel flooding the complex ignited, causing a massive explosion that sent the blast doors flying and ejected the W-53 cone about 100, 100 feet away from the silo into like a ditch. Huge pieces of concrete and rebar rained down on the crowd gathered outside, and Livingston unfortunately died of his injuries. Fortunately, the warhead's safety features held, and a, but a 9-megaton ground blast, where you know it was, would have emitted a cloud of fallout spilling into four different states, causing an estimated thousands of fatalities and injuries, according to this um, really nifty tool online called NukeMaps. You can see these simulations if you, you, you can pretend to drop um, certain classes of nuclear weapons onto particular cities and sort of simulate their effects and the, you know, the way the fallout would blow and things like that. So all told, the U.S. Defense Department recognizes 
32 Broken Arrow events between 1950 and 1980. And that's just the ones they're telling us about. You got to wonder, you know, maybe how many didn't make it into the public record or how many actually have happened since 1980 that weren't very well publicized. So we've talked about a couple of examples of technological malfunctions, first with the B-52s during Operation Chrome Dome, and then with the Titan II missiles. Um, But what we haven't really talked about is the human element in all of this. During the Cold War, the continuation of the human species periodically came down to a guess or a bluff by a single person. Often quoted is Secretary of State Dean Rusk, in in reference to posturing between the U.S. and the Soviet Union that nearly brought the two countries to an all-out nuclear war in the 1960s, he called the state of affairs a goddamn poker game. And it's an apt comparison. As we'll talk about in a second, the posturing between the Soviet Union and the United States was often this kind of duel between, you know, the individual president or, you know, the premier on the Soviet side, one kind of bullying the other, um, bluffing or, you know, sort of trying to psychologically manipulate the other in order to force some kind of outcome that would favor one country. And um, there were some of these, you know, some of these players were actually very good at this game. But if nuclear deterrence was a game, Nikita Khrushchev didn't think much of his new opponent after the 1960 U.S. election. The Soviet leaders formally squared off with Dwight D. Eisenhower, the former five-star general and supreme commander of the Allied Expeditionary Force in Europe during World War II. He himself was apparently a master poker player. Comparatively, Khrushchev thought of John F. Kennedy as something of a, just frankly, a spoiled softy a baby-faced aristocrat well-known for womanizing and hanging out about with the, you know, the likes of the Rat Pack, not used to a hard life. Khrushchev, meanwhile, was 23 years Kennedy's senior. Though born a peasant, he ascended in the Communist Party, participated in Joseph Stalin's purges, and took part in the bloodbath defense of Stalingrad against the Germans in World War II during Hitler's ill-fated Operation Barbarossa. Apparently, Khrushchev, you know, constantly would bring up his experience during Stalingrad as kind of a sign of his manliness. Fred Kaplan again details the June 1961 summit between the two men. Quote, It proved disastrous. Kennedy had hoped to calm tensions and avoid a crisis. Khrushchev braided him repeatedly vowed to severed Berlin's western ties by the end of the year, and warned that the Soviet army would go to war if the West tried to maintain its access. Boarding the plane back to Washington, Kennedy mumbled to an aide, it will be a cold winter, End quote. Allied-held West Berlin became a thorn in the side of the USSR quickly after its inception in 1949. It sat a hundred miles within communist East Germany and became the staging ground for East German citizens attempting to flee the, to the West. By 1961, four and a half million East Germans had emigrated to West Germany or West Berlin. These were primarily and problematically highly skilled professionals, engineers, doctors, lawyers, representing some 20% of the East German population at the time. 
To stem this outward flow, Khrushchev wanted to push the U.S. and its allies out of the city and return control to the East Germans. The East Germans constructed the Berlin Wall, and the USSR repeatedly signaled that it would forcibly take the rest of the city. So this is kind of the environment in which Kennedy is operating and squaring off with with Khrushchev. Khrushchev also relied on the ominous threat of this thing called the missile gap, which was the idea that the Soviets were far ahead, both in their numbers and their efficacy of ICBMs than the United States. With this rhetorical tool, his calculation was that the United States would not retaliate against a conventional ground invasion of West Berlin for fear of a strike on the U.S. mainland. Throughout late 1961, East German police began to interfere with or deny access to U.S. diplomats crossing into East Berlin as these tensions became more icy. But Kennedy wasn't having it. With the help of the Discoverer satellite's photography, U-2 reconnaissance spy planes, and human intelligence, Air Force analysts actually debunked Khrushchev's missile threats as baldly overstated. The number of long-range missiles possessed by the Soviet Union in 1960 looked to be merely four. Kennedy then authorized a speech by the Assistant Secretary of Defense Roswell Gilpatrick to announce the numbers and capabilities of nuclear weapons available on both sides and emphasize that, that the United States actually had a clear and overwhelming second strike capability if the Soviets were to make the first move. Quote, their iron curtain is not so impenetrable as to force us to accept at face value the Kremlin's boasts, end quote. So the U.S. wasn't going to just walk away from Berlin. Events came to a head on October 28th when U.S. General Lucius Clay deployed M48 Patton tanks to Checkpoint Charlie along the border between East and West Berlin in an effort to enforce U.S. freedom of diplomatic movement. Now, you can see lots of pictures of Checkpoint Charlie if you just do a quick Google search. It's this kind of weird break between the, you know, the east and west sides of Berlin and the, you know, the wall, and heavily militarized. The Soviets responded by moving an equal number of T-55 tanks to the opposite side of the checkpoint. Each force trained its guns on the other, and the staring contest lasted 16 hours until back-channel communications diffused the situation. With his long-range missile program publicly discredited for the meantime, Khrushchev began to look elsewhere for a lever to dislodge the U.S. from Berlin, and he found one in Cuba. Fidel Castro recently cemented his control of Cuba after the failed Bay of Pigs disaster, which was an attack by CIA-trained Cuban guerrillas to help retake the nation and install a non-communist, U.S.-friendly government. Castro crushed the counter-revolutionaries in three days. A woefully embarrassed Kennedy took the lesson to heart. Both Dan Carlin and uh, Kaplan talk about how uh, this really shook Kennedy's faith in his generals, um, who are all, I think he thought, after these events, warmongerers. In a chance flyover by a U-2 spy plane in October of 1962, the U.S. discovered medium-range Soviet ballistic missiles on the island. Kennedy's XCOM, or Executive Committee of the National Security Council, went into overdrive. Over the next 13 days, they debated how to proceed, getting little sleep. 
Most of the Joint Chiefs of Staff wanted an immediate and forceful airstrike to take out the missile sites. And Kennedy demurred, thinking back to his experience with the Bay of Pigs. He worried that dead Russians in Cuba would mean a clear escalation, giving Khrushchev the excuse to seize Berlin, throw the confidence of NATO off balance, and create a rapid spiral into general nuclear war. Kennedy took to national television and announced that the military found Soviet missiles in, in the Caribbean and said that he authorized a naval quarantine of the island. The word quarantine used specifically so as not to use the word blockade, which was, legally speaking, an act of war. In practice, it was the same thing. The world held its breath as Soviet ships steamed toward the U.S. Navy line. News outlets put out wall-to-wall coverage of events, and everyone waited to see whether the Soviet ships would try to force their way through or turn around. Most turned back, but in one case, the Soviet diesel-electric submarine B-59 was too deep to be aware of the evolving situation. U.S. destroyers located the submarine and started tailing it in international waters, pinging loudly on sonar and dropping light depth charges, a demand to surface. The captain, Valentin Savitsky, thought the Soviets in the U.S. may actually be at war, and he debated whether to use a nuclear-tipped torpedo on the tailing ships with the onboard political officer and the commander of the submarine detachment, Vasily Arkhipov. Policy was that a nuclear weapon launch required unanimous approval from these officers. The batteries on board began to die. The air conditioners keeping the atmosphere cool in the B-59 began to fail, and the temperature inside soared. You can imagine what that must have done to the pressure mounting on these three individuals. After some heated debate, they finally decided to surface. Arkhipov was credited with being the only one of the three deciders that opposed using the nuclear weapon. Had it gone the other way, and had been unanimous, or maybe all of them had given in to the pressure, it's hard to imagine what might have happened. Although no Soviet ships could bring new missiles into Cuba, the existing missiles on the island were operational. The Joint Chiefs of Staff drew up plans for a ground invasion and enormous conventional airstrikes to take out both the the ballistic and surface-to-air missile sites. But Khrushchev extended a deal to Kennedy to ease tensions from their fever pitch. If the United States would withdraw its Jupiter medium-range ballistic missiles from Turkey, he would withdraw the Soviet missiles from Cuba. With the bombing run slated to begin the following Monday, Kennedy leapt at the offer. Both sides demobilized their respective missiles, extinction averted again for the moment. So now we've talked about faulty aircraft, faulty missiles, and decisions that come down to a single person that likely decided the fate of civilization. But now let's talk about bad signals, faulty chips, and misbehaving radar. The North American Aerospace Defense Command, also known as NORAD, is responsible for monitoring the planet for any missile or aircraft headed in the direction of the United States or Canada. Although officially based at Peterson Air Force Base in Colorado Springs, 
NORAD's alternate command center resides in the Cheyenne Mountain Complex, which is one of the most hardened facilities in the world. There's some really excellent uh, YouTube footage. I think it's like a Nat Geo documentary um, on the Cheyenne Mountain Complex and how it was built. You know, it sort of shows like the, it's basically a city that lives inside of a giant granite, you know, mountain. Um, and the, the entire structure inside is just kind of a marvel of engineering. Um, the, the entire place, for example, sits on these enormous, thick, you know, coil springs because when a nuclear bomb hits, it basically causes uh, an earthquake. And so, you know, in order to avoid damage to, you know, the internals of this facility, they basically have everything on, you know, a, um, you know, a spring essentially. In 1979, on November 9th, the computer screens at the Cheyenne Mountain Complex lit up with Soviet missiles, and it looked like an enormous attack. Strikes were imminent, minutes away. Klaxons sounded at bomber bases around the country. Crews rushed to their planes. Fighters took to the sky. SAC, the Raven Rock Complex, which is you know another hardened facility, and the Pentagon were notified. The entire military infrastructure prepared for the worst. As time went on, however, no bombs detonated. Radar and satellites couldn't corroborate the launches. Shortly after the alarm, personnel at NORAD discovered that one of their technicians mistakenly placed a training tape into one of the computers. The attack was just a simulation. Again on June 3rd in 1980, Tensions with the Soviet Union were high after Red Troops poured into Afghanistan to defend the communist regime there, which seized power in Kabul in 1978 from the Mujahideen, which was a coalition of mainly Islamist but anti-government factions who rose up to fight the regime's national reform efforts. In response, the United States led a boycott of the Moscow Olympics and imposed sanctions against the Soviets. They also secretly began providing arms to the Mujahideen, which, you know, later, I guess, were used against American troops when we went into Afghanistan. It was in this environment that NORAD detected a launch of some 2,200 missiles at the United States. Now, nearly every Russian silo was empty. Brzezinski, whose uh, first name I will botch, but you can look it up, the national security advisor to the president at the time, was the one to receive the 2.30 a.m. emergency call. He was about to phone the White House to have the president decide whether to retaliate when General William E. Odom, Brzezinski's assistant, called back a moment before. A faulty chip in one of the NORAD communications devices was reading out erroneous messages. No missiles inbound, after all. Eric Schlosser writes in his book, Command and Control, Nuclear Weapons, the Damascus Accident, and the Illusion of Safety, quote, the defective chip was replaced at a cost of 46 cents, end quote. In September 26th of 1983, three weeks after Soviet fighters shot down Korean Airlines 007, a Boeing 747 carrying 269 civilian passengers, whom all died, after it strayed into Soviet airspace, the USSR was on high alert for any kind of U.S. response. The downing of Flight 007 caused worldwide outrage, particularly from U.S. President Ronald Reagan, who called it a, quote, crime against humanity. 
Stanislav Petrov, a lieutenant colonel in the Soviet Air Forces, was on duty in a Soviet command and control bunker south of Moscow when an early warning radar detected five inbound Minuteman ICBMs from the U.S. He was puzzled over why an American attack would be so small, and he purposely decided not to relay the warning up his chain of command, assuming it was a false signal, which it was. Later investigations revealed that the light reflected off of cloud vapor would periodically cause Soviet monitoring satellites to interpret missile launches. With his act of omission, Petrov is credited with likely averting a massive Soviet nuclear response and ensuing exchange with the United States. So, with the Cold War behind us and the titanic ideological altercations between Western capitalism and Soviet communism, the stuff of history textbooks, global nuclear annihilation is no longer top of mind for most, let's say. Pandemics, the rise of artificial intelligence, and other fears creep in to take the limelight of existential risk. But Schlosser, who we mentioned a little earlier, points out that we're not out of the woods, that citizens and policymakers shouldn't lose sight of what's really at stake. Much of the information about the events I was talking about in the course of this podcast are sourced from his book, but it also recounts more modern mishaps that erode the confidence we may feel that the military has everything under control these days. With so many Minuteman and NORAD computer systems under the constant effects of weather, entropy, and chance circumstance, malfunctions still happen. Like in October of 2010, when the Air Force temporarily lost contact with 50 Minuteman 3s near F.E. Warren Air Force Base due to the incorrect replacement of a circuit board during maintenance. There's also the ever-present human factor to keep concerns alive. In a more recent article, Schlosser shows that illegal drug use by U.S. Air Force missile personnel is sometimes a problem, possibly because of the long, boring hours. In 2015 alone, three launch officers stationed at Malmstrom Air Force Base were thrown out of the service for drug use, quote, including ecstasy, cocaine, and amphetamines, end quote, and a separate launch officer at Minot Air Force Base, quote, was sentenced to 25 years in prison for heading a violent street gang, distributing drugs, sexually assaulting a girl under the age of 16, and using psilocybin, a powerful hallucinogen, end quote. What might a future drug-abusing, gang-leading launch officer do someday? Relations between the United States and Russia no longer signal an imminent nuclear exchange, but there are other bilateral beefs to keep an eye on, too such as the standoff between Pakistan and India, each nuclear powers. However, lately, when sabers rattle and a U.S. president or a foreign actor spout rhetoric to flex their nuclear muscles, I guess we can take some solace in the fact that our nuclear demise has been much nearer in times past. At the time of this recording, superpower war and guaranteed mutual destruction of the type that confronted President Kennedy, Nikita Khrushchev, Ronald Reagan, or Mikhail Gorbachev, doesn't look to be in the cards. Because of this, deployed nuclear weapons in the United States and Russia shrink with each new arms reduction treaty. And with these decreases also comes a lower probability of accidental detonations and broken arrows. We've stepped back from the brink, but we're definitely not out of the woods. If you liked what you heard today, uh, please feel free to visit my website, uh, nickrroberts.com. 
and subscribe to my newsletter there or you know subscribe to this podcast wherever you may be listening to it. I uh, really appreciate the listen and have a great rest of your day. Thank you.